right, everybody. Welcome, welcome to show 41 on Crypto Voices. Matthew Majinskis, your host here from Latvia, joined by my co-host, Fernando Ulrich from Brazil. Hello, Matthew. And today we are going to introduce our special guest, Jameson Lop. Jameson is a cypherpunk, founder of Lop.net and Statoshi.info, both of which are great resources uh, on Bitcoin. He is former infrastructure engineer at BitGo and currently holds the same title at Casa. He is a prolific tweeter. I advise all our listeners to follow him if you're not doing so already. Jameson, thanks a lot for joining us and welcome to Crypto Voices. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Really appreciate you uh, coming on. It's, uh, it's really nice to have you. Really enjoy your tweets, as I said. So I just want to start out with the uh, trillion dollar question that I have on my mind. What, uh, what is your latest definition of Bitcoin? What is Bitcoin? And uh, will anyone ever understand it? The main problem that I think most people fall into is trying to come up with some sort of metrics or, or other authoritative definition of it. And, and, and these days, I mean, it's, it's very hand wavy. You, you just sort of have to stick your, your finger in the air and try to get a, a sense of like which way the wind is blowing. And so we have had, of course, a lot of contention over the past uh, few years with the scaling debate and and then the resulting many different forks coming off of Bitcoin itself. But as far as I can tell, it still seems to me that the vast majority of consensus, probably like 85 to 90% of the users in the space, believe that uh, Bitcoin BTC, the one that is... Um, generally supported by Bitcoin Core and, and six or seven other libraries like the Lib Bitcoin and uh, Bcoin and whatnot is in fact Bitcoin at least right now. But of course, there's no guarantees as to what that may end up being like in the distant future. I will link to your uh, to your blog post. Uh, we were actually talking about a pre-show that you know no one understands Bitcoin, which I still think is. Uh, a very interesting way to put it. I know you've given talks on that. It's a very humbling way to look at the system. Uh, definitely can appreciate that perspective. But maybe just uh, one follow-up. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, we've come out of the storm. You know, even a year ago, like if you thought back, like a year ago, we had UASF was sort of becoming formalized. Segwit2x was sort of gaining steam, and you know, we're only nine months or so from the Bitcoin Cash fork, and the you know even less from the failed Segwit2x fork. Now we have lightning, SegWit activated. If you just reflected on like maybe just the last year, you know, thinking about like a year ago, what you thought might have been possible today in May 2018, would you say Bitcoin is like ahead of schedule from what you thought behind schedule? Or again, is that just a dumb question is Bitcoin <laughs> doesn't care about any spec? Yeah, that's that's an, an interesting point, like regarding schedules and roadmaps, and I think that that's one thing that upsets a lot of people, where you know they try to to pin down, you know, what the future of the Bitcoin protocol and the Bitcoin network are going to be like, and they they want some authority to step forward and say, you know what, this is the roadmap and we're sticking to it, and you know if we get behind schedule, we're just going to work harder, and you know that's that's very old school thinking. You know that's how more centralized institutions and companies work, but that's not how Bitcoin works. So, as for where we are right now, 
I'm, you know, I'm pleasantly surprised by the progress that we're making with Lightning Network. I, I feel like we've um, made some sudden advances there over the past few months and, uh, you know, started to get a lot of uh, beta testers onto Lightning Network. And that just from the sort of acceleration in the number of people that are working on it, I, I think that we are going to be, quote, unquote, ahead of schedule um, over the rest of the year, I, I basically expect to see more interesting apps and and more infrastructure improvements come out, uh, so that you know hopefully by the end of the year we'll be near a point at which the more common uh, Bitcoin enthusiast might start to to get involved and actually use this on a day to day basis. But um, there's really, I guess, from a technical standpoint of expectations for the protocol i think it's more it's more about are you are you pleased with the current status of the protocol and what it's doing or are you displeased and and you think that it's either going in the wrong direction or not going fast enough and if you're displeased, then you know your options are either to contribute to it and, and try to make it better, or to go off uh, and basically fork and create a competitor. And so we've had people do both of those, and there's there's no I guess right or wrong answer to that. It's really up to each person to decide. You know, do you want to contribute to Bitcoin or do you want to compete with Bitcoin? And since we're, uh, Matthew just asked a reflection question about last year, uh, what, do you, what would you say you learned during this whole UASF and the New York Agreement drama and Bitcoin Cash, the forking of Bitcoin? What would you say, how, how has your understanding of Bitcoin evolved in this past year? I mean, it was, there, there were some very interesting political and social dynamics going on and, and, and really a lot of brinksmanship. Um, and I would actually say I was disappointed that Segwit2x got called off a week before it was set to activate. I, I felt like you know that was, that was basically the people behind that backing down. And I wanted it to actually come to a head. And if we, of course, later found out that if they had actually gone through with it, the Segwit2x chain would have gotten stuck for at least a while uh, because of some bugs that were in the code. Uh, but I, I wanted to take it to the markets. And you know, I was prepared to basically split and dump all of my 2x coins and, and you know, fight it out on the markets, uh, but unfortunately did not get the chance to do that. So it's really hard to say whether or not uh, like the UASF movement would have worked if it had actually come down to it. Um, we, we could have learned more, but you know, be, for whatever reason, uh, it, it resulted in people backing down and we, we ended up moving forward uh, without actually trying to do 2x. Now, it was interesting that, that Bitcoin Cash forked off because this is something that has always been an option for people who have been displeased with the direction that Bitcoin has been going in. And it's just finally, for whatever reason, uh, some of them who were disgruntled enough got together and actually did it. 
And once they did it and they pulled it off, they showed that it could be done, even though most of us knew, you know, of course it could be done. And so, you know, immediately after that, you've got a ton of copycats that are trying to sort of ride the coattails of Bitcoin Cash. And, you know, then we had the, the altcoin airdrop craze. So this is the type of thing where, you know, theoretically you could have predicted that something like this might have happened because it's technically possible, but it, it's very interesting to actually see it happen just from a social uh, dynamic standpoint. So it's because of events like this that, you know, we don't really know what might happen over the next year or the next few years. Um, you know, I could speculate that we could see you know, even more fracturing and splintering of, of different forks, uh, especially the larger ones, I think, are more likely to, to undergo uh, contentious issues. So I'm not saying that Bitcoin Cash will, will have some sort of contentious fork and, and create another one. I mean, we saw the classic fork, which was really more of a trolling fork. But um, there's just so much contention and... Um, aggressiveness that, that I feel from, from that particular subset of the community that it wouldn't particularly surprise me if we saw some other weird things happening. And Bitcoin Cash, they do have another fork coming their way. I think it's May 15th, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so um, they're, they're going to re-enable some old opcodes and increase their block size cap yet again, even though they're nowhere near using the current 8 megabytes. Um, I'm sure somebody is going to have a little fun and stress test their network and it'll be interesting to see how well it handles that. But um, they are they are pretty, you know, well set on their path, which seems to be mostly like looking back. Uh, you know, the, all these changes that they're making are, are mostly changes that got disabled or restricted in, in years past. And, uh, and, and, and then from a broader standpoint, what we're seeing is a lot of people that are, are building these apps on Bitcoin Cash that are basically clones of apps that people built on Bitcoin in like 2013, 2014. And the, the weird thing is that they seem to be making this assumption that the reason that those apps didn't take off and go mainstream was because of limitations in the Bitcoin protocol. But I think that it's it's a lot more complex than that. So, um, you know, fingers crossed for them that something is different this time and they'll be more successful. But I'm, uh, I'm not betting any money on it. Now, in terms of other projects, you, do, you did mention there's a perhaps a, a misunderstanding of people in the field thinking that we should have a roadmap and there is a clear roadmap when in fact there is none. But there are some developments uh, such as Schnorr signatures and perhaps a few others and that will provide some more privacy and even scalability as Schnorr itself. What other developments in Bitcoin do you that excite you at the moment and how far are we from having Schnorr signatures uh, merged in the, uh, actually developed and eventually merged in, in the, the protocol? Um, I mean, it, it sounds like there has been a fair amount of work done around that. Um, I would be surprised if it, it happens in 2018, uh, probably more like 2019. But the, the stuff that is more interesting to me is, is what's going on around scripting. 
And so you've got mast, uh, your Merkleized abstract uh, syntax trees, and then you've got these other concepts like uh, graft root and tap root. And really what we're seeing is the more conservative and, and privacy-oriented Bitcoin development uh, stance being taken towards the scripting and smart contracting. Um, and, and also, you know, along the smart contracting lines, we have folks that are working on simplicity, which is supposed to be a more uh, programmer-friendly smart contracting language for Bitcoin. So this has kind of been one of the big questions about, you know, Bitcoin versus Ethereum for a number of years is, do we really need Ethereum in, in this uh, really developer-friendly uh, solidity programming language for, for doing smart contracts, or can we do a similar type of functionality on Bitcoin? And simply because Bitcoin developers tend to be a lot more conservative and, and make changes at a slower pace, Ethereum has had several years in which to innovate and basically uh, propel themselves forwards and make a lot of mistakes and try to fix them and, and just keep going, you know, with the move fast and break things type of attitude. But now perhaps we're going to see Bitcoin start to catch up with that and, and do so in a more thoughtful manner. So it will be interesting, I think, to see if long term Bitcoin will be able to basically offer similar functionality to Ethereum, but in a more scalable and more private way. Yeah, and in terms of privacy, this is one of the, the issues that, that is related to fungibility of at least at the base protocol. And it's something that's been discussed and was the focus in last year's scaling conference in Stanford. And I think it's going to be again in, in this year's scaling conference in Tokyo. And how, how are you, are you satisfied with the current level of privacy that we have at the base protocol? Can we increase it? Or are we going to have to rely on second layer solutions such as the Lightning Network and, and all the, the protocols that we have at a, a secondary layer? Oh, there's, there's definitely um, a lot more that could be done. So, you know, right now, privacy in Bitcoin is almost non-existent. It's, it's pretty terrible. Um, you know, Schnorr signatures is is one thing that could help with that, basically allowing us to create mixers that are much better at uh, protecting your privacy than the, the current style of mixers. Though we also have uh, people that are, are working on better uh, privacy uh, mixing uh, type stuff. Uh, I, think, I think one of them is uh, Zero Link. Um, and then there was there was another one that was uh, being developed, I think, by by Ethan Heilman, that was uh, using zero knowledge proofs. And I haven't really heard too much from them lately. It sounded like they had a a, a working proof of concept, but I haven't haven't actually seen it out in the wild. But then on a on a more day to day basis with privacy. I think we are going to see some improvements from using Lightning Network because it has various privacy-enhancing features built into it. And, and I think privacy is something that is more important to have on your day-to-day your -day transactions. It, it needs to be 
um, happening by default under the hood, you know, whenever you're, you're just doing something that you're regularly doing, you shouldn't have to take extra steps to protect your privacy. Otherwise, the vast majority of people aren't going to do it. And thus, the effective privacy of whatever system that is being built is not that great. It's, it's actually, it's one of the reasons why I tend to tell people that while like from a theoretical and technical standpoint, uh, you could argue that Zcash has stronger privacy properties than Monero. I think that from a, a real-world uh, standpoint, Monero has better privacy than Zcash simply because all of its privacy features are on by default and it's not possible to not use them. Whereas uh, with Zcash, the vast majority of people are not using those privacy features because they're, they're not required, they're not default, and a lot of software actually doesn't even support them. But then there's this, this trade-off of privacy against security or transparency at the base protocol. If you have full privacy, it might be even be, be difficult to prevent counterfeiting of coins. So how do you see this? Also the development of Bitcoin, it seems to me, and this is one of my questions, if it's correct to say, we are Bitcoin is following the model of having at a secondary layer a Chromium eCash type of uh, scalability. I think you, you would want to avoid getting into a situation where you can no longer prove the total money supply, you know, kind of like they, they're... Uh, sitting in, in Zcash where you can't actually prove the total value that are sitting in uh, shielded outputs. That's why you'd probably see things like uh, you know, confidential transactions happening before you saw something like a zero-knowledge proof like built into the base protocol layer. But I mean, the nice thing is that you can still use that type of technology on second layers, kind of like the, um, the mixer that I was talking about earlier that is actually using zero-knowledge proofs with uh, a centralized but trustless uh, mixing authority. Now, just changing a little bit the subject, but it's kind of related as well. And you've mentioned something about uh, the smart contracts in Bitcoin. It seems to be we are currently in a, I'd say, standards or protocol battle, like with TCP/IP and the internet. I mean, how many crypto protocols do you personally see in the future? Or perhaps most importantly, at what level compared with TCP/IP do you see the Bitcoin protocol being on in the future of the internet? Yeah, so this could go multiple ways. Um, I, I'm certainly skeptical that there will be thousands of different protocols, um, mainly because, you know, as a developer, it takes you time to, to learn a given protocol and become proficient at it and then build stuff on it that is, is uh, secure and usable. However, you know, there are other possibilities where I think we actually saw, for example... Uh, this new Python library got announced where it's basically trying to abstract away the scripting languages of multiple very different protocols like both Bitcoin and Ethereum. So, you know, perhaps there will be other layers built on top of this massive, diverse ecosystem of crypto asset protocols, and, and you will just be able to use some other layer. That on top of it that is abstracting away all of the differences that are under the hood. Um, it's you know, pretty hard to speculate as to, to which way that's going to go. Um, I think you, you, could, you could approach it from many different angles. 
especially like the the economic angle of of money itself and you know how do we expect the the distribution of value across these systems to be i mean I think we have enough history so far that is showing that there's there's only going to be a few big ones and the rest of them are just going to follow this long tail distribution. So when when you have these networks and protocols that anybody can stand up and and create a new one that's basically a, a clone of one of the existing ones with very minimal changes, then that's those aren't going to have very much value and while they will exist almost nobody is going to use them simply due to network effects and uh, you mentioned uh, you know some of the economics which we like to talk about and I do want to get to um, shortly but a couple other sort of security tech questions uh, in light of this maybe looking at ethereum now there's you know sort of uh, a big debate about um, standardizing even uh, recovery of uh, stolen, burnt, frozen, inaccessible funds. Um, what do you think about this, uh, this sort of debate? It's you know, obviously started with the parity wallet issue and goes back to the DAO. You know, that's, a, that's a protocol level discussion, which certainly has a lot of social implications in it. But you know, uh, what, what is your opinion on how the, the discussion there is happening on Ethereum? So the the interesting thing about working in these protocols is that they're extremely unforgiving. And and you know that's where the the code is law mantra came up a number of years ago and it, it worked fine until it didn't. And it's it's kind of a similar thing I think with a number of other uh, protocol features and changes that that are happening over the years of um, you know, people might approach it from the standpoint of, well, we can do this because it's working fine, and maybe it maybe it is working fine until it doesn't. I think that these protocols should be approached from almost like an aerospace engineering uh, type of standpoint, where you do need to be extremely uh, paranoid and and think about the the highly unlikely edge cases. Because over a long period of time, highly unlikely things are likely to happen. And because it's so difficult to, I guess, uh, pivot one of these networks or to you know, patch a bug on one of these networks because nobody controls it, then you want to do everything that you can to avoid those extreme edge cases in the first place. So I think that you know, for Ethereum in, it, in particular, the better thing would have been to, uh, to make it very hard for people to, to make these uh, screw-ups. And it's, it's a trade-off, though. The reason they made these screw-ups is because they built a programming language that was very user-friendly, uh, but, but not very well vetted from a, a security standpoint. And, um, and so it was very easy for a developer to, uh, to write a smart contract that had a bug in it that is just not obvious to anybody who's actually reading the code. So the result is that they need to have a more flexible community or uh, you know ecosystem around it that might be more forgiving and be willing to to help these uh, developers who are basically the victims of the ecosystem themselves and some of the tenants that the ecosystem has uh, has brought with it in order to become as popular as it has become. 
So, you know, I'm, I'm fine with, with the Ethereum community deciding that, you know, they need to be flexible um, and, and, and help bail out some of these developers. Um, I can fully understand how they got into that situation and it really sucks. And, and perhaps that's just something that they need to do until Ethereum can hopefully someday get to the point where the tools for developing these smart contracts make it a lot more difficult for someone to shoot themselves in the foot like that. But of course, uh, Bitcoin has a, a very different community and, and a different ethos and a mindset to it. And so I think that the development of Smart contracts and other features on the Bitcoin network need to be taken with much greater care because you cannot expect to get a bailout or, or really any sort of emergency fork unless it's something that is dire and putting the entire system in peril. I've read some of your blog posts on wallet security and how you had a lot of trouble going through setting up a multi-sig wallet for Ethereum. And now when, we, when I see people talking about crypto assets and diversifying portfolio and putting their investments in many different assets, the reality is we have many different protocols as well. It's not just assets, not just like Litecoin or, or Decred or any other asset that might replicate Bitcoin's technology. It's a fork of Bitcoin. But many other assets, they do have a different technology. Ethereum for one, but many others. And since they have another technology, they also differ in wallet security as well and wallet options. For example, Ethereum, and for me, this was when I read your blog post, I had, I didn't, in fact, know at the time that Ethereum has no multi-sig, native multi-sig at a protocol level. And for me, this is a, almost a, uh, it's a no-brainer. I mean, if, if you don't have, not even multi-sig, how can I store my assets securely? So what's your view on, on the current state of security and for holding all these different crypto assets in the space? Uh, it's, it's, it's tricky because... Really, I think the best user-friendly security is going to come from a hardware wallet. And of course, a lot of hardware wallets are only going to support the most popular few things. So we're, we're actually we're grappling with the Ethereum native multi-sig issue uh, at my new company again because I spent you know, nearly a year working through the Ethereum issues uh, and, and having a, a smart contract that needed to be developed, and uh, I really want to avoid that. So we're, we're kind of going to have to work around it, and you know, we may end up doing some sort of, of key splitting with single SIG on Ethereum uh, and, then, and then using uh, hardware wallets to protect that. So I have people coming to me all the time that are asking about this random altcoin that I've probably never heard of and how to secure it. And I think most of the, the answers there have to be, well, you, you probably need uh, your own dedicated computer and, and full node that you're running around that. And it gets uh, pretty highly technical. So I think we're not going to see mainstream user-friendly stuff except for the, the most valuable networks where we, we end up having the hardware security providers that are adding support to them. Yeah, and, and I definitely want to get to CASA because I think uh, that's a great use case that you are uh, addressing. Uh, one more technical sort of security issue then, taking it back to Bitcoin, what we've been talking about. Um, clearly, 
the Bitcoin system has developed as a more uh, you know cautious, secure, safety first uh, system, as you mentioned. Uh, but one, I really wanted to ask you this question because I think it's for a non-technical person that has heard even some of Bitcoin's past, it can be daunting. And uh, I've, you know, I've heard you talk about this. Many people have talked about this. I mean, obviously it's documented, but you know, Bitcoin has been susceptible to bugs uh, in the past, in the early days. Uh, even bugs, you know, that Satoshi missed. Uh, you know, the ability to change inputs and send and spend other people's coins. Uh, that value overflow incident in 2010, where it's like almost 200 billion coins could get created. I think, you know, non-developers, the people that are looking at Bitcoin now, uh, those stories are still sort of floating around. And that seems like a scary thing, like where obviously if that got out of control or wasn't fixed immediately, uh, that would be pretty catastrophic. So a couple, a couple part question here to you. Obviously, Bitcoin is way more developed than those early days so people should understand that and uh, but still the market cap is much larger so it's a bigger you know honeypot uh, to to take down a couple questions here one do you have any sort of ability in your security experience to even put a probability on something like that happening again today and I know that's a that's a totally hard question to ask you but like there seem to be a quite a bit of those bugs that they all got fixed. You know, what might be the probability of that happening again? And the second is, let's just say something happened, like for argument's sake. Now, maybe it wasn't a 200 billion coins, but it was a million coins could get created or something. Uh, what would happen, in your opinion, around the Bitcoin like development community and consensus to sort of fix that bug in a quick, good, like non-catastrophic way? <laughs> how, how do you think that would... Would look. Yeah, I mean, it really depends on the type of bug. Uh, with regard to probability of these like black swan events happening, um, you know, if you look over the the history, then they're happening less and less often. I think one of the main reasons for that is that there are more and more eyes on the code, more people reviewing it, and and you know preventing such bugs from getting into the code base, and and thus then getting uh, downloaded and installed on nodes. And um, there are of course a number of different bugs that could happen. And the nice thing about a lot of them is that. They're usually uh, fixable by just doing like a minor-based reorganization of the chain. So you know, kind of like what happened with the last major bug in was it uh, 2013? Maybe it was it was the the BDB uh, locking bug that caused a chain split. And so you know, there there are a lot of people that are monitoring the network now. You know, I even have software that monitors various aspects of the network. And if something goes completely awry, you know, we're probably going to notice within an hour or a few hours, if, if not almost immediately. It just depends on what, what it is. And if it's caught fast enough, then you can, you can often you know, quickly gather some emergency consensus from developers and miners and other major ecosystem players to say, hey, you know, if, if we had a chain fork or if we had something else go wrong, then maybe we can just go back a few blocks and then start moving forward again from that point after after applying a patch or or downgrading to the version that didn't have this bug or, or whatnot. Um, 
for for more involved stuff that's not that easy to fix, then you know you are talking about uh, a major system wide disruption that would probably cause panic in the markets and, until it got resolved. But this is what we're basically talking about here is the fundamental fallback, uh, like safety net for the network. And so I I often tell people that. What we have with these various protocols are, you know, sort of specialized machine consensus. It's, it's a way for distributed set of computers that a diverse set of people around the world are operating to automatically come to a consensus about the current state of some uh, database, and the important thing here, I think, is not so much the code that's being run or the machines that they're running on but rather uh, the humans that are operating those machines that are deciding that they want to run this code and that they are agreeing to this protocol and these rules. And so we're running all of this software and hardware because the humans are, are in agreement with each other about what we're trying to do. So if something fails in the hardware or software, then the fallback mechanism is getting the humans back together, you know, in meat space, if you will, and and getting them to decide, you know, what needs to be changed with the software or hardware so that we can then proceed forward. So that that's the main reason why I think that these networks are so incredibly robust is because even even if something does fail with the hardware or software, there is the fallback mechanism. Interesting. Interesting. And is there ever not to belabor this point, I think that's a great answer, but is there ever like, again, for a non-technical person, like, uh, is there a fine line where you see that? Is it like more than 15 minutes worth of a fix <laughs> by coders or, or do you think it's just going to have to be a, a case by case? These things are very case by case, which is why it's important that you know we have distributed sets of, of specialists all over the world who are constantly monitoring the system because you know uh, some some random edge case bug could get hit at any point in time, 24 seven, 365, and we need to have uh, humans that are available to diagnose the issue and then propose solutions for for how to fix it. This episode of Crypto Voices is brought to you by HODL HODL, the cryptocurrency peer-to-peer exchange that does not hold your funds. On HODL HODL, all trades happen directly between buyers and sellers of both Bitcoin and Litecoin out of or into any fiat currency of your choice, no middleman involved. Each time there's a trade, a contract is created between the buyer and seller where the exchange generates a unique multi-sig escrow address into which the crypto seller safely deposits the funds until all steps of the trade conclude. HODL HODL itself does not touch the funds nor have its own wallet interacting with your trade. HODL HODL is a cheap, fast, effective way to sell some fiat paper tickets and buy some sound crypto. And until July 2018, you'll be pleasantly greeted with 0% commissions and SegWit support. The exchange requires no verification and is truly global. So wherever you are, go to hodlhodl.com today, get some Bitcoin, get some Litecoin, and we wish the team at HODL HODL all the best and thank them for their support of Crypto Voices.
I want to move now on to uh, what you're doing with, with Casa. You, you, I guess, recently made that move. Um, I really like this model from what I know about it and what I've seen. And uh, I don't know if you guys are the only ones targeting sort of uh, the premium market for storing uh, and, and safely managing some of these problems that we've just been talking about. But it seems like a very needed service in the space for you know, new people where the, the technical bar is just something they can't cross. And, and this is a space where a lot of people are getting interested. So to me, it seems like a really interesting business model. Can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to, to work with them? Yeah, so as far as I know, Casa is the only service uh, that is trying to approach the non-custodial uh, storage of these coins for, for high net worth individuals uh, who, who want to be their own bank. It was a pretty natural transition for me. So, you know, I spent three years uh, building infrastructure at BitGo, and uh, BitGo was responsible for I don't even know how many billion dollars worth of, of assets that it was helping other enterprises maintain in a non custodial fashion. Um, of course, the majority of that, uh, the bread and butter of BitGo's business was around hot wallet operation, which is incredibly sensitive and you need to have uh, as much security around as possible because the if you want the ultimate security for crypto, you just take it offline and now you've brought it into the realm of physical security, which is a pretty well understood problem. But for businesses that need to be automated, you know, operating online and sending and receiving funds, they, they have a, a very challenging uh, set of security issues they need to face. So after three years of doing that, uh, BitGo grew, got pretty big, and you know, I had seen a lot of failures and a lot of successes and uh, in, in general learned a lot. And um, I, I felt like, however, it was still... Um, it was still too difficult for the average person to to learn how to properly secure a wallet, and and after speaking to a lot of people, I, I realized that um, a lot of them are just you know leaving it with a custodian because they figure the custodian can probably take better care and, and understands the security better, and they just don't have the time to devote to to learning how to do it right, so. When Jeremy Welch came to me and, and basically pitched his idea, I, I felt like it was something that was really filling a gap in this space where we, we have gotten a lot better um, with security and usability because of the proliferation of hardware wallets. Um, even if you are building your own solution using hardware wallets, there are a lot of different considerations that, that you have to worry about around uh, end of life, around loss and theft. And, and so even with the great usability improvements that hardware wallets have brought to us, I still think it's too hard for the average person. And, um, and, and I've dealt with this myself because on, on basically an annual basis, I, I go through and I review my own setup. And it usually takes me a full day uh, to, to basically go over my, my long-term storage solution and, and refresh things and, and make sure that – basically test everything to make sure that it would work in case I got hit by a truck and, and my heirs need to uh, you know, get access to my crypto assets. So at, at Casa, we've basically 
decided that we can use the security aspects of these hardware key signing mechanisms and then try to build in the best practices around all of the other issues into the software. So I think that we have actually seen a, a pretty decent market for this fairly niche product arise over the past year or two as, of course, the, the value of crypto assets have gone up so much. And so while we're starting out with a fairly high-priced product, um, this is going to be basically uh, you know, part of the, the learning curve for us where we're, we're hoping to do a, a Tesla-like model where the the, the people who are willing to pay more because they have more to lose are going to help subsidize the learning process and building the software so that we'll then eventually be able to, uh, to get it out to the rest of the world in a more affordable service. Yeah, and um, again, I, I totally agree with you. I, I totally think that uh, just as far as Bitcoin adoption goes, this is a very logical next step and uh, really sounds interesting. So a couple questions. I don't know, you know, I know the... The info on the website's fairly fairly basic, but I figured I'd ask anyway. Are there um, some pricing indications uh, that you have? And then the second question would be, how important is privacy to the client there? Like it is non-custodial, as you, as you say, but still there is a there's a proliferation of multi-sigs going around. So, what is the net effect on privacy to the client user to their funds? So uh, with regard to pricing, our initial pricing at least is going to be pretty hefty. We're looking at like around $1,000 a month. So this is only really going to make sense for people who have uh, you know, millions of dollars worth of crypto assets uh, that they're willing to pay like around $10,000 a year to uh, have a you know, high security vaulting type of product. The, the thing is that this is this price is not just going to get you some software and, and a few hardware signing devices. This is a uh, full service, you know, boutique security solution where you're basically getting, you know, a dedicated um, support engineer 24 seven if you run into any issues. And, you know, the hope is that we will be able to build and then fine tune our software over the coming years so that it requires lighter and lighter touches and, and fewer and fewer interactions between the clients and the CASA employees. And as we're able to do that, then my hope is that we will then be able to bring the pricing down uh, simply just through you know, automation and scale. From the privacy standpoint, you know, there is not really going to be any privacy in a product where um, you know, you're basically on a, a first name basis with, with the service provider. Um, part of that is due to um, the fact that CASA is going to be doing uh, you know, key recovery service. So when, when you, you create a three or five multi-sig wallet through CASA, one of those keys will be held by CASA as a recovery mechanism. And if you ever want or need to go through that process where you've lost enough keys on your own end that you need one of ours, then of course we're gonna have to do some sort of um, identification to make sure that, that nobody is, is phishing or spoofing. Um, and in fact, uh, several other parts of the, the security around CASA are in fact going to be reliant upon uh, like a video auth authentication for, for sensitive actions. So 
One example is that we see uh, we see a lot of sort of social engineering uh, based thefts that happen in the crypto space. Um, and we also see a lot of, of thefts that happen because someone's uh, phone or email account gets compromised and then that allows an attacker to get into their account and steal their money. Um, we're, we're, at Casa, we're trying to close up all of those loopholes by not allowing that sort of automation. And like any sensitive actions against a Casa user's account are actually going to require a video authentication with a Casa employee if they want to change you know, some fundamental um, data on their account. So it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of like uh, you know, having your own uh, personal banker on the back end or personal uh, security officer on the back end that is uh, watching over making sure that uh, no hijacking is happening. So if I understand correctly, the customer, the owner of the crypto assets, he will be relied upon to hold at least one private key. Is that correct? Out of the the five uh, sets of keys that you would have with a Casa wallet, one of those uh, will be held by Casa itself. Um, the user will have the other four, um, and they can they can either have uh, three different hardware signing devices and keep one key on uh, the phone that is you know, used in the trusted execution environment on the phone, or they could have four different uh, hardware signing devices. That's, uh, that's all very interesting. Um, I want to get to a couple economic questions if we can, uh, but before we finish, uh, is there anything else uh, you'd like to say about CASA regarding the model or uh, what you guys are trying to do? One of the main things that, that I think is interesting that's happening in the space as like the institutional money is coming in and you know, Wall Street money is coming in and all that is that we're actually seeing a, a, a surge in um, custodianship of crypto. And some of that is for regulatory reasons. Uh, some of that is simply because the institutional money that's coming in doesn't have that technical expertise or, or have the people on staff that um, that have the expertise in all of the, the security um, knowledge that is required to, to hold on to these assets. And so I think that we're we're one of the the few companies out there that's kind of pushing back against this and saying, you know, we we believe that the, the promise of Bitcoin is that anyone can be their own bank. Um, and perhaps Bitcoin has failed on that promise a bit from a usability standpoint. But that is the, the, the roadmap, I guess, that, that we want to try to further enhance. And I think it's kind of a, a cop-out for a lot of the services out there to start um, you know, to basically focus on the custodianship aspects because you know that's that's not a new model. We've already tried that model before and it has failed us <laughs> many many times. Yeah. So I, I think that that if anything, I would like to see more you know competitors to Casa come up. I want to see more people trying to to build out this unique non custodial use case because that's where I think the real uh, the promise of crypto assets is lying. Great. Well, I wish you luck with it. It's it's really does sound like an interesting project and uh, definitely needed. Totally agree with uh, all those points. Um, a couple economic questions for you uh, before we close, uh, Jameson. I've heard you say 
somewhat recently that, you know, you do hope at some point, you're not sure when it's going to happen, but you do hope that, you know, Bitcoin can get back to the medium of exchange aspect or real moneyness aspect as far as digital cash uh, is concerned, you know. What is your general opinion on merchants today in Bitcoin? Is it necessary to to think about them, to try to get them adopting and using Bitcoin more now than ever? Or uh, And this is from a development perspective. So from a development perspective, uh, what are merchants' uh, relationship to Bitcoin these days? You know, it's, it's kind of weird. I remember how excited a lot of people were back in the like 2013, 2014 era when BitPay was, was really booming and signing up a lot of merchants and stuff. And then we kind of we kind of saw it fall off. Yeah. Um, and I think that a, a big reason for that is that a lot of the merchant adoption that people were targeting was just like first world merchants that are probably already accepting credit cards and other forms of, of modern payment systems. And when we're talking about crypto for those type of, of interactions, it's not nearly as interesting as when you're talking about using crypto for um, censorship-resistant properties, doing transactions that may be frowned upon or not allowed through existing payment networks. Or, of course, allowing for... Uh, for payments to happen through people who don't have the ability to get onto existing payment networks and get into the traditional banking system. So um, I'm not as excited these days about the, the like traditional um, payment systems uh, that, that merchants are using uh, and, and getting them to just start using crypto as, as another rail. That's, I, I don't feel like there's a whole lot of innovation or like, um, you know, massive effects on the world for, for us to have just another payment rail. More interested in seeing um, new types of functionality, new types of, of apps and, and means of economic interaction being built on top of these crypto systems. Basically, building new types of of services that are not even possible to build through credit card and, and other types of payment networks. Yeah, I, I view the the whole widespread merchant adoption nowadays. I, I get the feeling that is kind of putting the cart before the horse. I I I think that the the what we should strive for is to have merchants actually wanting to accept crypto not just forcing them, kind of forcing them to accept or making the customer. Then we're going to see the, a real use as a payment mechanism or as, as a currency, as a medium of exchange. And I've heard you speak about Bitcoin as a new type of reserve money. What is your opinion on Bitcoin becoming a new reserve standard? Well, I mean, it's it's going to be interesting to see if some sort of like international monetary uh, race happens. The The... One of the things that I've kind of postulated on is that the you know the smallest or or most underprivileged from an economic standpoint uh, type of countries stand to gain the most from being an early adopter of crypto, and and you know if we if we saw you know even just one or two tiny little countries start to um, use uh, crypto as their you know primary form of money or, or even as a reserve currency, then that could spark uh, you know, uh, sort of currency wars 2.0 
where rather than the currency war being based upon large economic powers devaluing each other's currency in a race to the bottom, we now have people adopting crypto sort of in a, a race to the top, you know, trying to be the, the early adopters that will get in before everybody else. And I think it's, I think it's happening. Question then regarding these people who are actually doing this adoption and uh, sort of, you know, in the same vein of uh, custody and whatnot, which we've been talking about, insecurity. I want to quote something that uh, Trace Mayer actually said on another uh, Bitcoin Good podcast, the Noted podcast. Uh, you uh, tweeted it in support of it. The quote is If you don't run a fully validating node, you're a second class Bitcoin citizen. If you don't hold your own private keys, you're a third-class Bitcoin citizen. Uh, one response, which I thought was interesting, and I'd like to hear your thoughts, was, um, was from Eric Voorhees. He, he said he didn't agree with that at all. He said, you know, if you don't uh, grow your own food, you know, you're a second-class eater. What is your thought as of late uh, regarding this, this sort of thinking? Yeah, that was a very controversial um, uh, tweet. And I actually agreed with Eric. I said, you're right, I am a second class eater. Um, I could definitely do a lot more to be better about the security of my food supply. And, and you know, this is, this is uh, one of the things of, you know, looking at crypto from a security standpoint and saying, you know, the whole point is that it is allowing us to have this completely new and strong security model. And, and thus, um, we, we kind of get upset when we see people throwing that security model out the window. Um, but, you know, that is the freedom of the protocol. Everyone has the freedom to choose a weaker security model. And so um, one of the things that I think got a lot of people kind of triggered by that quote is that, that they were, they felt like it was sort of like a classism type of, of quote, or you know, trying to look down on people or demean them. Yeah. And and really, more of what what that quote was trying to do was trying to get people to understand that there is an incentive, and it, it, it's it's not a class barrier um, where you know if if you're a first class or a second class citizen in a country, you know, it's very hard for a second class citizen to become a first class citizen because there are these barriers that are set up by usually like socioeconomic um, uh, rules that, that have been created over many generations. But in Bitcoin, if you're a third class citizen, it's, it takes a matter of minutes to become a second-class citizen. If you're a second-class citizen, it takes maybe a, a matter of hours to become a first-class citizen you know, by, by taking control of your private keys and then by taking control of the validation of the rules to make sure that nobody is defrauding you. Um, there's much lower uh, friction and much lower barrier to entry to becoming a first-class citizen, quote-unquote, in the Bitcoin or in the crypto space. So, you know, like a lot of analogies and metaphors, this is by far, uh, you know, far from a perfect uh, analogy um, with comparison to, you know, other socioeconomic issues throughout the world. But the, the real point is that it is, it is incredibly easy to uh, maintain an incredibly strong security model in these systems. And it's, it's kind of baffling to a lot of us um, of, of how little effort some people are willing to put into that. 
one more sort of follow-up to actually another thing that Eric has been tweeting. And we don't typically talk about people's tweets too much unless it's our, our own guests. But uh, we've had Eric on the show. And, and generally, I, I like his you know, opinions on the free market. Um, this one is relating to tokens and ICOs and not having anything to do with whether they're good or bad or healthy or unhealthy. But he has. I've seen some tweets from him lately saying... Basically, caveat emptor. Let the buyer beware. Sure. Right? If if you don't if you don't like this project, or you think this project is scammy, or if you think this project is unhealthy, or it's bad, or whatever, uh, just simply don't invest. What are your thoughts on that that idea, as opposed to you know maybe more regulation or something else? Yeah, um, it is tricky. Um, you know, we we do have some people in this space who are very good at calling out scams, and uh, some of them go too far and call something scams uh, that probably aren't really scams. They're just kind of dumb. Um, but I think the the reason why why people might get upset from from that type of statement is that you know. It's kind of a rule that there are going to be dumb people out there who get scammed, and you know this is the reason why we have various uh, regulatory authorities and watchdogs and you know um, basically uh, consumer protection agencies is because there are a lot of dumb gullible people out there. Now, I don't know that you can fix that. I don't know that you can you know prevent there from being dumb gullible people. Um, and as long as there are gullible people, then there are going to be predators that are going to scam them. So it's it's not something that I have the a perfect solution for. We often talk in kind of like hand wavy um, ideas of well, you know, what we need is like better uh, reputation systems and, and, and ways for like the market to to communicate. That you know this particular thing may be dangerous or may be a scam. Um, I think we're a long ways away from having a a like distributed, decentralized um, reputation system that can act as a sort of consumer watchdog. So um, yeah, I can see it. I can see it both ways. Um, and you know, I've told a lot of people. I'm very public about the fact that I have not invested in a single ICO. Um, and that's not because I'm saying that they're all scams. Um, the the simple reason for it is that I do not have the time and resources to do the due diligence that is required to safely invest in these products. And and that's because I see ICOs as uh, very similar to angel investing. And if you're going to be doing that sort of investing, you pretty much need to be doing it full time and need to be an expert and very well versed in the space so that you can do the due diligence to really assess what the risk is of investing in this particular thing. Now Jameson, back to some uh, an, uh, another technical question I think this is going to be our final one and this is often a heated, there's a heated debate around the issue of consensus algorithms so proof of work or proof of stake. And one of the, the, the things that makes me a little bit uneasy about proof of stake, and I'm not a technical expert on this, but I get the feeling that people and developers pushing for proof of stake are saying this is a superior algorithm. They're not actually trying to come up with a more secure consensus blockchain, a more secure blockchain, but actually they want to try to solve the climate change problems. That, that's usually how I see it. And Andreas Antonopoulos, he usually says, we might only need only 
one proof of work chain and in, in all of the crypto space. Do you agree with this assessment? What is your view on proof of stake and proof of work? Yeah, so really what what pretty much any of these consensus algorithms are trying to do is make it incredibly expensive for someone to uh, screw with the network. You know, make it expensive for them to double spend or, or in general defraud the network. And the, the main difference between uh, proof of work and proof of stake or any of these other um, uh, like quote unquote faster, more efficient uh, consensus algorithms is that proof of work uses an external resource. It uses something that is external to the network and to the protocol, uh, and that is energy expenditure. Uh, whereas all of these other ones tend to use resources that are internal to the network. So, you know, basically uh, staking uh, some sort of value of tokens or, or reputation or something on the network itself. So you, you get into some more like uh, in-depth theoretical arguments about which one of those is more secure or, or potentially easier or harder to game. Um, I, I prefer having a, a real-world external resource uh, to that. Uh, I feel like it is more um, egalitarian because you know, other people can go out into the world and, and harvest that resource. And it's, it's, it just feels uh, a bit more self-entitled, I guess, to the system that like, you require someone to, to buy into uh, the, the system's token itself in order to, to have uh, the ability to secure it. But from a, a technical standpoint, you, you get into these ideas of like short range and long range and tax. And, and I, I did write a fairly lengthy article about a year or so ago where I, I looked into both of these systems. And the, the big problem with proof of stake is that there's always this long range attack issue uh, where um, even uh, Vitalik Buterin himself coined this term of, of basically the, it's like the, the royalty problem where uh, if there's ever a point at which a, a certain individual or set of, of individuals has the sufficient ownership of, of tokens on that network, then there's always going to be this... Uh, possibility that they could collude and basically go back in time and start creating a new fork of the chain that that begins at that point in time and and this is the sort of long range attack that we talk about sometimes whereas you know if you try to do that in a proof of work scenario it's always going to cost a a lot of money in order to go that far back in time and and create a new uh, fork of the blockchain with a different history. And so you can actually go and check out some, some charts of uh, like how much it would cost to do that on Bitcoin. And in fact, um, you know, Peter Wille has some uh, charts on his website that show you know, how many days worth of, of current energy expenditure would be required to go back uh, a certain amount of time. And, and you know, we're, we're basically talking about uh, an attacker who had like 100% of the current hashing power 
would pretty much have to expend it for like uh, a year if they were going to go back and, and rewrite the whole blockchain. So it's it's hard to specifically compare these like from a metric standpoint and say, oh, this one is like 30% more secure than that one. Um, it, it becomes a bit more philosophical. And so we, of course, are seeing, you know, Ethereum working on their, their Casper uh, protocol for, for proof of stake. And you know, I'm sure they'll launch it at some point and, and maybe it'll be good enough. Uh, maybe they will never have to deal with any of those long-range attack problems or, or edge cases. But uh, this is kind of going back to, I guess, what we touched on very early on, which is that when you're building these uh, distributed consensus networks, it needs to be more than just good enough. It, it needs to be able to handle even the incredibly unlikely edge cases. Well, that is a more than good enough way to end it, Jameson. Thank you very much. Uh, we've touched on a lot of uh, very interesting topics today. Really appreciate your time. Appreciate uh, Rodolfo Novak for uh, putting us in touch with the introduction there. Really, really interesting. Thanks a lot for your input. As we close, uh, any sites, links uh, that our listeners uh, can find you if they don't already know? Well, you can find pretty much everything you need to know on lop.net, L-O-P-P.net. Perfect. We'll link there. We'll link to uh, some of your other sites and Twitter. Really appreciate your time. It's a pleasure talking with you today. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Thank you very much, Jameson.